We are preparing for a wonderful Christmas. We are starting our Christmas series tonight with uh, such a heartwarming passage. In fact, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. In fact, I want to read for you our text tonight, which I am guessing there are a few of us that when we've come to this text in our Bible reading, we've done this thing where we've taken our finger and we've just skimmed over it really quickly because tonight I want to walk you through the genealogy of Jesus. And I'm going to do the fun work with you. Let's read the entire text together, verses 1 through 17. I think you can stand that long. Let me show you this incredible text. Here it is. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nahashon, and Nahashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, or Asa, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeho- Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's go ahead and stop. Have a seat. Now, I was tempted to do a read-along with that passage and see how we would deal with some of the pronunciation. But my, you know, my wisdom got the best of me. I said, let's, let's, let's just let the text sit. What, what a story. I mean, we, we read through the, this, this genealogy, and maybe you have the King James Version, and instead of saying who is the father of, you read that word begat. This person begot this person who begot this person over and over again. And you kind of find yourself reading that like, why is this in here? I want to answer that question. Why is this genealogy front-loaded at the very beginning of the very first book of the New Testament? I think it's there for some incredible, incredibly important theological reasons. But, but to get there, let me set some things up for you. Let me set this up for you by telling you a story that happened on September 14th, 1990. As Ken Griffey Jr. Sr. stepped into the batter's box as the seventh oldest player in Major League Baseball. 
He had a, an 0-2 count, which meant he had two strikes on him. And at that next pitch, he drove a strong line drive out the left center field, hit a home run. Pretty normal in baseball, right? But what happened next wasn't so normal. Because after that, his son, Ken Griffey Jr., the youngest player in Major League Baseball at the time, stepped into that same batter's box. And instead of having an 0-2 count, he had a 3-0 count. They were kind of pitching away from him. And on that fourth pitch, he was given the green light, and he drove that ball almost the identical place that his dad just hit that ball, home run. Top of the first inning, the Mariners go up 3-0. But what happened in that moment was not just historic because father and son were playing on the same team together. What they did that first inning was something that no one had ever seen before. Father and son hitting back-to-back home runs. In fact, it's never been seen again. That's how unique of a moment that was. Father and son, back-to-back home runs. What a family legacy. What a family legacy. Maybe you think about a different family when you think about a legacy. Maybe you think about some of the powerful political families over the ages. You think about the Kennedys or the Bush family, or you think about the Rockefellers. Maybe your family has a legacy that is very strong. Maybe you're proud of your heritage. Maybe your grandparents and your parents went ahead of you, and they lived lives of godliness or honor or of esteem, and you're part of that. Or maybe you don't have much of a legacy at all. Maybe you've kind of distanced yourself from those who have gone before you, and you're striking out to build your own kind of legacy, your own kind of life living for the Lord. We all think about legacy, but what I want to look at today is I want to look at the greatest legacy that has ever existed, the legacy of Jesus the Christ the legacy of Jesus the Messiah. I want to do that by opening up our Bibles together. If you have not done so yet, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And here's what I want to see. Simple truth coming out of these 17 verses tonight is that Jesus' genealogy gives us confidence in God's promises. This is the burden I have on my heart for us tonight. I want us to see this text, not as just this, this, this history written down in some book that's just meant for genealogy purpose. What I want us to see in this text is that this genealogy, it gives us confidence that the God who has promised things, the God who has already made and met some of his promises, and the God who has made promises to us, he's a God we can trust, that we can have confidence in him. See, the, the problem is sometimes we don't value all of the scripture. I've been there. I've just kind of read this and kind of skimmed over it. Oh, yeah, I kind of know some of those names, and, and we skim through it. But when we do that, there are, there, there are times where we miss important truths the scripture is trying to convey to those who trust in the one true God. See, today we're beginning our Christmas season, and instead of beginning with Mary, did you know, we're beginning with a a history lesson. Do you all know the history of Christ? Do you know his genealogy? Do you know his, his legacy, his lineage? And do you know what is so significant? And so let, let's jump in. Let's go through this Christmas series. Let's start with Matthew chapter 1. And instead of talking about Christmas and the lights and the presents, we're going to start by talking about the promises that I think fall out of this. Promises for those who are God's people. Promises for those who have trusted in him. Promises for those in this room that as we enter into the Christmas season, you're, 
you're not too sure about God's promises. Maybe you're going through one of those seasons where life is, it's hard to see God moving. It's hard to trust his goodness. I hope this text reminds you so clearly and powerfully of how you can have confidence in God's promises. We're going to do that in two sections. We're going to look at how Jesus was the promised king, and we're going to look at how Jesus is God's perfect plan. Let's begin. Jesus' genealogy, first of all, shows he is the promised king. Jesus' genealogy shows that he is the promised king. Now the question is, what kind of promised king were the people of God expecting? What kind of promised king was he? Was he a, a conquering king? Was he a weak king? What kind of promised king was he? Well, this text that we're going to look through, I think that there, I mean, we, we can honestly turn this into a, a multi-week series looking through the history of Israel. But there are three aspects of this promised king that, that I want you to consider tonight. Three of them. Here's the first one. I want you to see that Jesus is the Jewish king. This is speaking ethnically, ethnically and religiously, but Jesus is the Jewish king. Look at that very first verse. Matthew chapter 1, in fact, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, we're going to talk about him in a minute, and then it says this, the son of Abraham. And then it goes back to Abraham, verse 2, and it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We think of those names today, and maybe you know someone named Abraham. You maybe call him Abe for short. Maybe you have a friend named Jacob. There's some Jacobs in our church. Maybe you know an Isaac, and you think, oh, I know an Isaac. But that's actually not who this is talking about. This is talking about those who are called the patriarchs of Israel. Kind of a big word, right? Some of us, we get kind of shivers. Patriarchy, ooh, that's not what I'm talking about today. I'm going to talk about the patriarchs. These are those founding fathers of the people of God, the, the nation of Israel. They trace their lineage. All of them trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, if you were to read the very first book of the Bible, you would read the book of Genesis, and that's where you would find the story of these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, Matthew, the author of the gospel that we're reading, he was, he was a Jewish tax collector. He knew all about the Old Testament in fact, when you read through, as we study the book of Matthew, and, and just fair warning, we're going to look at Matthew, the beginning section for Christmas, and then into the new year, we're just going to keep going, and we're going to walk through all of Matthew for, a, it'll take us a few months, maybe longer than months. But, but as we do that, what we're going to find is Matthew's gospel is saturated with Old Testament references. In fact, Matthew's gospel has 52 quotations, not including passages where he might be referring to more than one text. Matthew's gospel has 255 what are called allusions or echoes, passages or, or citations that, that they, they kind of sound a lot like the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew's gospel, he uses nearly the same amount of, of Old Testament quotations as the other three gospels combined, and almost twice of any other gospel. 
See, Matthew's gospel is a gospel that if you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to miss much of what he's saying. Because this is a thoroughly Old Testament saturated gospel where he is trying to get the attention of those in his community who are not yet convinced of who Christ is, but have connection to the Jewish community. And so we're going to see all over the place all of these references to the Old Testament. And so it makes sense that verse 1 and verse 2 mention Abraham, the father of the people of God, the father of the Jewish people, the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, and when, when Matthew mentions Abraham, here's Matthew's point. Matthew is thinking about Abraham and all of the promises God has made to Abraham and to the nation of Israel. You have Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Listen to God speaking to Abraham. It said, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is before his name was changed, he said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. Listen to God's promises. He says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." This is the, the promises made to Abraham where God was going to bless him. He was going to make a nation out of him. He was going to give him a great name. And ultimately, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Now, how do you think all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him? Through his descendant, Jesus Christ. If you go a little bit further in the book of Genesis, if you go to Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 through 16, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, he said, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Look at these promises that God makes to this man, Abraham. He says that I am going to give you a forever land. I am going to give you an abundance of offspring. This is God making promises to Abraham. And these are the promises that the people of God or Israel hold on to even to this day. These are the promises Israel holds on to even to this day. But, but what is Matthew's point? Matthew's point is... Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the one who is connected to Abraham. And so if Jesus is in fact going to be this Messiah who rescues his people, the only way he is legitimately going to be the Messiah is if in fact he is a true son of Abraham. This is Matthew's point. That Jesus is, he's a Jewish king. In the line of the Jewish people, following after the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and David, but, or, or, and Jacob. But that's not all. Because not only is Jesus the Jewish king in Matthew chapter 1, but maybe even more importantly, Jesus is the Davidic king. It's kind of a big word, Davidic. 
Look with me back at the text. Look back at verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this is saying Jesus is a son of both of these. He's a descendant of both these. We've already talked about Abraham. Let's talk about David a little bit more. Verse 2, it says, And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Look at verses 3 through 6 now. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nahashon, and Nahashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Not only has God made promises to Abraham that we're going to see are fulfilled in the work of Christ, but now Matthew ties the genealogy of Jesus to some promises that were made to David. See, David was the second king of Israel, and he's looked at as this great king of Israel. Many of you know David was a man after God's own heart. We could just spend months talking about the life of King David and how significant it was. But listen, the most significant thing about King David in his life were the promises God made to him. Let me show you these promises. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. The Lord is speaking to David. He says, And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish your kingdom. He, your offspring, shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Look at this word. Forever. This is the promise God made to David. He said, I am going to make a promise to you that there will be a king in your your bloodline, a king that will follow in your family line who will reign forever. Chapter 7, verse 16. The Lord continues, he says, and your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These are the promises of God. This is what God has promised. And here's what he promised. He promised to David a forever kingdom. He promised to David a forever Davidic king. He's really promising to David that the Messiah would come through his bloodline. Again, if Jesus has no connection to David, then Jesus is not the legitimate Messiah or the legitimate king. But Jesus has come through the line of David, which is Matthew's way of saying, look, He's the real deal. He says, Jesus is not only the king of the Jews in line of Abraham. Jesus is also the Davidic king in the bloodline of King David. Now, we're all sitting here, and you guys are hopefully tracking well with this history lesson. And you're thinking, okay, this is interesting. But you might be thinking this question, well, what about me? Because I'm not a Jew. (laughs) I'm not Jewish. Maybe you are. Maybe you're not. But what does this mean for us? Well, look back at Matthew chapter 1. Because I think Matthew chapter 1 also 
teaches us, it gives us hints that not only is Jesus the Jewish king, not only is Jesus the, the Davidic king, but Jesus is, in fact, the universal king. He is the one king that anyone can come to by faith. Now, I said that Matthew 1 has hints of this. As we look through Matthew over the next months, we're going to see that there are moments where Jesus says to his disciples, don't go to anyone beside the Jewish people. Don't go to the Gentiles. But we'll see hints of the mission to the Gentiles throughout. And then when we get to the very end in Matthew chapter 28, we're going to see the command to go to all the nations with the gospel. But let me show you the hints in Jesus' genealogy. Hint number one, verse five. It says, And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. You notice in this text, it doesn't just track the fathers. In this text, it mentions the mothers. In fact, it did earlier. I don't have time to talk about Judah and Tamar. I wish I did. But this text, it actually tracks and it mentions two women. Two Gentile women. Two women who were not included in the Jewish nation. They were not included in the promises of God that he has made to his nation. These two Gentile women, Rahab and Ruth. Let's just, uh, let's just take some time. Let's think about these two gals. Let's start with this, this woman, Rahab. If you don't know who she is, Rahab is introduced in Joshua chapter 2, and we discover that she is a Canaanite, not a Jewish. She is a Canaanite prostitute who aided the Israelite spies when they went to Jericho, and as a result of her belief in God, belief in the God of Israel, she and her family were spared when Jericho was destroyed. Let me give you some of her story. Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we see that Joshua sends his spies to Jericho. Let me read this for you. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went, and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Verse 3, When the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out those men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Verse 6, But she had brought them up from the roof, and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on her roof. What you have here is this woman, for whatever reason, trusting. Trusting in the God of Israel. See, in that day, Israel had just crossed over, and there was this expectation that Israel was going to come, and they were going to begin to make war upon the nations. Jericho knew this was coming. This is why the king freaked out when he heard that there were spies coming. They are coming, and they are doing recon, so they can conquer us. This woman, she put her hope 
in these spies? Ultimately, in the one true God. Go down with me to verse 12. Verse 12, now then, she is speaking to these two spies. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life, excuse me, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way." And you know what? They kept their promise to her. And we actually find that she ends up marrying in to this Jewish nation. Verse 25, you see, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day when that was written, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out as spies. Now look, this woman, Rahab, we could just read her name in this genealogy and just kind of scoot right past it and keep moving. But I don't think that's the point here. Matthew's making a point as he is writing. He is teaching us that, look, this Jesus, he is the king of the Jews. But there are Gentiles included. Let me give you the second example. I'll be a little bit briefer. Let me give you the example of Ruth. Whereas Rahab didn't maybe have the greatest of character, Ruth stands in contrast as a woman of, of high character. Look at this woman. Ruth, she was a Moabite woman. She was loyal to her Jewish mother-in-law, even when her father-in-law and her husband and her brother-in-law had all passed away, and she remained faithful to her Jewish mother-in-law. Ruth, chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17, this is after all of the men of the family is, have died and Naomi is about to travel back to her people. Look at what Ruth says. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. What a declaration of faith. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also of anything but death, parts me from you. What an incredible woman of faith who says, I am going to stand by your side. And in that, what do we find happens? Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. This is after she has now been married to Boaz. This is after the story comes to a great conclusion. We don't have time for the entire story tonight. But, but look at the very end. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Sound familiar? Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nahashon. Nahashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You realize what Matthew's doing here? He's putting a neon sign up 
for those who are willing to slow down and those who are willing to read this genealogy and understand the point he is making. Yes, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Yes, Jesus is the Davidic king. And yes, Jesus is the king for the Gentiles who will trust in him as well. That's what's going on here. Jesus is not just for Jewish people. Jesus is for all who would trust in him. See, what's happening here? Matthew is showing us that Jesus is the promised king. But but let's keep going. Not only is Matthew showing us that Jesus is the promised king, but, but I think that in this genealogy, Jesus' genealogy shows us also that he, Jesus, is the perfect plan. Not only do we see the kingship of Jesus, we see the plan of God unfold in this text. Now, let me show you this. First of all, we see the plan of God is to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, we've, we've talked about this before, and many of us here know this. But look, when the Bible talks about Jesus Christ, this is not talking about Jesus Christ like it talks about Mike Freeman. Christ is not his last name. I'm Mike Freeman. Mike's my first name. Freeman's my last name. But when it's talking about Jesus Christ, this is talking about Jesus the Christ. See, see Christ is a title. Christ is an incredibly important title. In fact, the term Christos is used 531 times in the New Testament. This term, Christ, that we use is our English version of that Greek word, and it, it originally means anointed one. It's this picture of anointing or smearing oil upon someone. See, this word Christ has to do with the word that comes out of the Hebrew language, which is Messiah. And Messiah for the Jewish people was the anointed one, but it's not just anointed, like I'm putting oil on your head because I want you to have a happy day. This is anointed for a position or for an office. See, Christ is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is anointed for a specific position. This position is to be the one who saves those who would trust in him, who would have faith in him. This is an incredible title. This is an incredible important part of God's plan. His plan from the very beginning has been to send a Messiah. And that's what Matthew's signaling here. He's saying, if if you'll pay attention, you're going to see that Jesus, he is God's perfect plan. He is the Messiah. Now, notice something really quickly. Jesus is the Messiah, despite the skeletons in his closet. If you were to go through this genealogy, you see some really great things, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We look at this and we say, wow, those are amazing, amazing people. They were also terribly broken people. Jacob, his name means ankle grabber, and he spent most of his life swindling and cheating and deceiving. You have Judah, that the tribe is named after that. You have Judah, who made it so that his daughter-in-law, when her husband died, that she could not end up finding a husband among his brothers, and he ended up being tricked, so he slept with his father-in-law. Not a bright spot on the family history. We've already talked about Rahab, who was, who was a prostitute. 
But what about David? David, whose wife Bathsheba, she's not mentioned in here, but who is mentioned? Her husband? Uriah? Because David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then sent Uriah to be murdered? This is a list, not of perfect people. This is actually a list that shows all the skeletons in Jesus' closet. We could talk about Solomon and his 700 wives and 300 concubines. We could talk about Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who was tyrannical among his people, and in his foolishness, the kingdom was divided. We could talk about Ahaz, who is the wickedest king in all of Israel, and he is part of this list. Yet none of this hindered God's perfect plan. God's perfect plan was to send his son Jesus to be the Messiah. None of this derailed it. Jesus, he is the Messiah. But this also, I think, points out that Jesus, he was right on time. He was right on time. Look at verse 17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You know what Matthew is doing here? Matthew is saying, look, reader, pay attention. This is all according to the plan I think about the A-team. I think about Hannibal. I think about that famous line. Like, I love it when a plan comes together. That's actually what Matthew is doing in this moment. He's saying, look, all of this history, all of these names, all of these begots, all of this name after name after name, we might read that and we might roll our eyes and we say, this is kind of boring. (laughs) But I almost picture Matthew writing this down on the edge of his seat, giddy for how amazing of a truth is being placed before us. See, Jesus came right on time. After the time from from Abraham to David was 14 generations, and after the time from David to the exile when Israel was conquered and they were hopeless and they were helpless and they had no future that felt like, to 14 generations after that. Look at the text. Look at verse 17. It says, the, the Christ, here the title form is just actually plainly used. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. He says this, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's four things that are right about this text, verses 4 and 5 of Galatians. Here's what we see. We see, first of all, the right time. Look at the text. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the cup had had gotten, the, the water of the cup had risen all the way to the brim, when it was just the perfect time, what did God do? Sent forth his son. First of all, born of a woman. We're going to talk about that next week. Secondly, it says born under the law. 
This means that Jesus, he lived under the law. He lived under the righteous requirements of the law. And what we know is that unlike you and unlike me, you know what Jesus did? Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. We're going to see that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish law, the law to excuse me, but to fulfill the law. This is what Jesus has done. At the right time, Jesus came, born of a woman, born under the law, and look at the purpose, back to verses 4 and 5 of Galatians, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? (laughs) So that we may receive adoption as sons. Not only was Jesus born under the law, Not only did he live a perfect, sinless life, but he took that life and he redeemed us with it. This this is literally talking about him being arrested, falsely accused, unjustly tried and convicted, being beaten, being mocked, being taken outside the city limits, being nailed to a cross, being raised up, being mocked upon the cross until he breathed his very last breath. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to find his last words, my Lord or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The final quotation from the Old Testament, Psalm 22. Why? To redeem those born under the law. See, this just sets the record straight, church. Being a Christian isn't saying, okay, you come, you clean up your act, you make sure you do all the right things right, and then Jesus will accept you. That is not what being a Christian is. Let me be very clear. Being a Christian is when we come and we say, my life is a mess. I have a rebellious heart. I have sinned before God. I need help. And you know where we find that help? Not in self-help. Not in our own works. Not in cleaning up our act. We find that help in Christ who died to pay the price for our sins. We find that help in the perfect plan of God that happened at just the right time when Jesus came to be your Messiah. Is he your Messiah? Will we just be self-aware for just a moment here? Many people come to church week after week. And you've heard this before. And it kind of washes over you like it kind of almost maybe makes sense. But you're not totally sure where you stand with God. Maybe you're still kind of hoping that you've been good enough or that you can make up for the bad things you've done. That's not how you're made right with God. If you're willing to be self-aware, can I just offer you right now, tonight could be the night where you can experience the redemption that is promised in this text. Where Jesus will come, and he'll say this. He says, I have taken all of your sins, and I have paid their consequence entirely. There's no more price to be paid. There's nothing left for you to do to be good enough. If you will trust that I died and I rose again, tonight I will save you. I will be your Savior. I will be your Messiah. I will be your Christ. It's all part of the plan. 
In fact, I would argue, if I can go out on a branch, I would argue if you're here tonight and this is the first time this is making sense, it's all part of the plan. I'd argue God brought you here tonight so you could hear that he loves you. You could hear that you can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You can hear that you can be redeemed in Jesus Christ. You can hear that you can be, look at the end of verse 5, you can receive adoption as sons. This reminds us that if you have trusted in Jesus, you are now a child of God. If you have not trusted in Jesus, you're not. But this is the invitation to you tonight. Jesus was right on time. And you know what? Baked into that is a promise for those who have trusted him. If you're here tonight and you have trusted in Jesus, maybe you've trusted in Jesus a long time ago, but you still struggle. Listen, this reminds us that he's your savior. That your sins have been forgiven. That you are his child. And there's nothing that anyone, even you, can ever do to change that. He's redeemed you. Let me give you one more picture here. The last thing I'm going to say is not only was this Jesus right on time, but I just want to remind you that Jesus will be. He will be right on time. In your notes, I have Revelation 22. Revelation 22 reminds us of Jesus' words at the very end of the entire Bible. It says, He who testifies these things says, Surely I am coming. And the, our response is to say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. But you know what I could have included? I could have included Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus promises to come again. Listen to these words. Chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man. Jesus is speaking about himself. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. You know what Jesus has promised? He's not only promised to save you, but he's promised that he is going to come back. He's going to come back. He's going to fix this broken, sinful, dark world. He's going to come back when it's as dark as possible, the very end of this tribulation, when things are so bad that the sun and the stars do not even shine. He is going to come back and he is going to take those who are his to be his with him forever. That's why the response in Revelation 22 is, Come, Lord Jesus. See, church, we, we can trust in his promises. You want to know why we can trust in his promises? Because we've already seen God keep many of his promises. 
We've seen these promises fulfilled already as he has sent a saving king. We've seen these promises being made as he has promised that he will come back as a sovereign king. What this means for us tonight is that Jesus' genealogy, it gives us, no, it gives you confidence in God's promises. So what what would I ask you to do with this tonight? Here's how I want you to take this home with you. First of all, I would like you to frame your holiday season with the promises of God. Would you let this Christmas season be a season where you you simply rejoice at every turn at the fact that God sent his son to be born of a woman? We're going to talk about that next week. Will you just rejoice in this the specialness of the season as we remember this great moment called the incarnation? Number two, will you trust in the promise of Jesus' return? Even when things are hard? Even when life is messy? Will you promise or will you trust that he will promise to be with you? And finally, will you continue to praise him as the promise keeper? As the one who is always faithful? Now we get to do that. By sharing in communion. I, I want us to express our gratitude to the Lord by giving thanks and, and breaking this bread and taking the cup together. And this is a moment for those who have actually trusted in Jesus in his death and resurrection. If that's you, our custom here is in just a moment, I'm going to open the tables. There's one in the front and one in the back. I'd like you to make your way forward, take the bread, take the cup, take it back with you to your seat. When you get to your seat, just take some time to thank God for keeping his promises. Take the time to thank God for sending the Savior. Take the time to thank God that Jesus is your Savior. That he died and paid the price for all of your sins. And after we've had that time to reflect on his promises, I will come back up and we will remember together the price that was paid so that we could be redeemed we'll remember together the promises already kept in Christ. I will add, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I just would encourage you to stay in your seat and just observe. That's okay. No judgment at all. We love you. We're really glad you're here. But this is actually a a special moment for those who have trusted Jesus to say, Jesus is mine. I I am his. I also want to say to the Christian in the room, If maybe you're thinking, ah, I've sinned this week. Maybe I'm not good enough for communion. That's not what this moment's about. I want to encourage you to take this as a time uh, or an opportunity to repent. To to turn back to the Lord. To go to God and say, yeah, God, I, I know I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry. Will you turn my heart back to Jesus? And then share in communion with us as we remember that we all come by grace. That said, my my church family, the table is now open. We read from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and I'm going to back up and and then read a little further. Verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, reminding us as the church, he says, "I, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under the guardians and managers until the date his father sets. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you have rescued us through your son, Jesus. That we are no longer bound under the law with the condemnation that comes from our failure to keep it, but rather we are now free to serve you as your children. We are now free to call you Father, and we now have the promise that we will inherit all things in Christ. We thank you for the work that Christ has done, and we thank you that your plan came together perfectly as you sent Jesus to be that perfect Messiah, the, the King of the Jews, the King that was in the Davidic line, the King of all who would trust in him. And Lord, now we rejoice that we get to be among those. Lord, help us to thank you and rejoice every day. Lord, may we live lives that reflect your grace as we walk in gratitude and holiness. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. The Lord took the bread on the night that he was betrayed, and he, he used this image. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember. After supper, he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Amen. I'm so thankful you came here tonight. Uh, I hope you learned some fun things. And I hope it touched your heart. Jesus is amazing. And many of us in this room have discovered that. We've discovered how profound the scripture is. And if you're on a journey where you're just starting to learn this thing, these things about Christ, I would encourage you, reach out to someone sitting around you. Many in this room would love nothing more to, to pray with you, to encourage you, to, to walk you through how to read your Bible. And, uh, and they can get you in contact with any of our church leaders as well if you're looking for that kind of help. But listen, this is all about Christ. And I, and I hope you've remembered that. Now, we're going to end with one final song, rejoicing in the truth of what's been done for us. But I want to remind you that we would love to have your connection card. You can turn that in in either of those black box by, boxes by the door. Just slide it right in there. I saw that, Becky. Good job. Gold star. She just did it right there as I was talking. So I'd love for you to turn that in. Let us know how we can pray for you, how we can connect with you. We do want to encourage families that want to help us with our candle lighting. We've got three services a weekend. There's a lot of opportunities for people. So if you're interested, please let us know that. And then finally, if you do have an offering, we, we don't uh, force anyone to give. That We don't expect that, but we do invite that. If you want to partner with us in the ministry and the mission here as an act of worship, and, and thank you. I know many people seem to have been uh, changing their giving habits after we taught about it earlier this year. Thank you. We really appreciate that as we come together and serve the Lord side by side. With that said, let's stand. Let's lift our voices with one final song, and then we'll be dismissed to, to continue to walk in the Lord.